If God so greatly loves his people, loves you so fully, loves you so eternally, why does not that perfect love translate into this life in a better way, perhaps, than you're experiencing right now? Why is there so much mistreatment of Christians in this life, the dangers, toils, and snares of which we have just sung in John Newton's famous hymn? That's, that's the question, that's the tension that we're going to seek to address here this morning. This is the third and final message on the pilgrim. We saw what a pilgrim is in the first um, uh, offering, that you are a stranger, an alien, a sojourner, uh, because you have been made alive to the world that is above, and that has made you a stranger here. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Either you are a pilgrim or you are a prodigal. Either you are, and there's a sense in which everybody's an alien, everybody's a stranger, everybody's a pilgrim, in the sense of the worldling says, I'm a stranger to God. I'm an alien to God. I am his enemy and he is mine. That's at the heart of unbelief. And of course, Christians then have had that reversed. He is our friend now. And that means the world is not your friend. That is, worldliness is not your friend. And so that's what we sought to look at in the first, in the first message. There are these two families of strangers that occupy this earth. One is hellish and one is heavenly. And the two have their own destinations. And so the importance of what it means to be a pilgrim was set out before us. This is one of several metaphors. I try to get across to us. It would be a mistake to make the pilgrim metaphor swallow up other metaphors. The Christian life is rich and varied. Sometimes the Bible calls you a farmer. Sometimes the Bible calls you a soldier. Sometimes the Bible calls you uh, other metaphors that have their own meaning about them. And whenever we take one particular metaphor and make it the whole, we do damage uh, to the biblical view of the Christian life. So that was the first message. The second message dealt with the seven anchors for the pilgrim in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter addressing the aliens that were scattered all throughout uh, all those places in Asia Minor, um, feeling uh, you know, politically, maybe culturally um, distant from their neighbors. He reminds them of what is most important to them, that they are God's pilgrims and that they have several anchors. And we went through and talked about the anchor of, of election and the covenant of grace and the Trinitarian God himself being our God and the anchor of having the inheritance of eternal life, of being anchored in the fruit of regeneration, that we are new creatures in Christ that demonstrate faith, hope, and love, that we're anchored in the prophetic scriptures and in a transformed life, a heavenly life, and at the end, we brought out the fact that all of this is in the Lord Jesus Christ who shed his blood for us and that we can never be, um, uh, uh, never be separated from him. So every Christian is, by definition, a pilgrim and anchored in these good things. Everywhere you meet a believer, they are on their way out of the wilderness and on their way into their heavenly Canaan, their inheritance, invariably. Wherever you see a Christian, that is a fact about them. Some of us are making 
slower progress than others. But nevertheless, that's the tendency. That's the way. And we read about this in Hebrews. Abraham, who is the very father of the, of the faithful, uh, of those who believe, who trust in the Lord, is styled a pilgrim. God chose this on a purpose. He called him to leave his home, to leave Ur of the Chaldeans, his natural home, and to seek out a land that would be given to him. By faith, he lived as an alien in that promised land along with his children. He dwelt in tents. He dwelt as a foreigner. He had to deal with being a foreigner in that condition. And he and his confessed these things. It wasn't that it just happened to them. They confessed that they were pilgrims that they were on a journey, that they were exiles on earth. They owned it, and they did not turn back from it. Because ultimately what they were seeking was not a piece of real estate here on earth. They were seeking a heavenly city, a country uh, where God dwelt perfectly, and that which he designed and which he has built for us. Jacob, at the end of the book of Genesis, the last patriarch, confesses to Pharaoh in Genesis 47. The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Not Pharaoh blessed Jacob. Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. Now, This reality from the Abrahamic covenant is not left behind when we step over the line from Genesis to Exodus. We don't go into the Mosaic covenant and leave that behind. There's been mistakes made about the Mosaic covenant, major mistakes about the Mosaic covenant. But listen to what Leviticus 25, 23 says. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, says the Lord, For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. So the pilgrim motif carries over from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to Moses, Aaron, and Joshua. Centuries later, David the king confesses the same thing in Psalm 39, which we read. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Don't be silent to my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my fathers. David's king. I mean, he's ensconced. He has a place. And yet he says, I'm a sojourner and a pilgrim like my father's. And some have said, well, maybe this is when he was being hunted by Saul and he didn't have a place. But listen to what he says as he blesses his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 29. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I? Uh, And who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this regarding all the gifts for the temple? For all things come from you and from your hand we have given you. For we are sojourners before you and tenants as all our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow and there is no hope. That is no hope that can be found here in this world, but only in the world that is to come. So, all of this to say, here are these two facts, two doors, if you will, 
One, every believer from Genesis to Revelation is a pilgrim. And number two, every believer is attended with pilgrim-like treatment in this world. The pilgrim, the favorite of heaven, is on earth a stranger, an alien, a foreigner. So sublimely does John write in his first letter, chapter 3, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We, when we are born again and become children of heaven, children of God, to be made like the angels one day, the world doesn't perk up and go, isn't that wonderful? We are not recognized yet, you see. It's only when the heirs of the kingdom inherit the earth and are fully satisfied, as Jesus taught us in the Beatitudes. As they see God, they shall be called sons of God. The peacemakers are called then. There's coming a day when this will change, when we'll no longer be styled aliens and pilgrims. We will be home, and we will be recognized as such by all of the universe, not only by the Lord himself, which is chief, but all of the angels and all of the wicked. They will recognize the Christian to have been saved by the wonderful mercy of God. And that's where it all comes from. None of it comes from us. It's the great love and grace of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, it's right here where we find this incongruity then, this inconsistency. If I am a favorite of heaven, why is it that things seem to go so poorly? In 11, uh, Hebrews 11.38, Christians are those of whom the world is not worthy. And yet this is placed right in the center of all this nastiness around it. People of whom the world is not worthy are walking around in animal skins because they're being banished. They're being impoverished. They're living not in mansions yet at all, but in holes, in caves. They're not being treated like um, the, the children of God that they are. So here's this incongruity. They are beloved beyond measure. You have God as your father. The Lord Jesus, the son of God, is your elder brother. And that's glorious. God abides in you. And so if God so prizes you and loves you so much, he's going to give you everything. Why such hard treatment here in this land that has fallen? Why is there not more abundance and of health and prosperity and celebrity here on this side of glory? No, says the Bible, torture, imprisonment, chains, mocking, scourgings, stoning, sawing, swords, dressed in poorest clothing, you who wear the robe of Christ's righteousness, destitute, homeless, stricken. Those who are heirs of heavenly mansions in Christ are wandering in deserts and mountains with Moses and with David and dwelling in caves and dens like the treatment that Elijah and Jeremiah and Daniel had to face. Now, I know as I say these things, that I don't think we in America have suffered such things. I don't see anybody wearing, styling their goatskins today. I don't see that when you're leaving here after service, you're going to go crawl in some hole somewhere because that is your house. It surely is different for us as we read these texts from others who have had to face these very things, isn't it? I mean, when we sang those lines from Newton through many dangers, toils, and snares, 
I don't know about you, but I think of those lines in terms of, of um, more spiritual and moral dangers, right? Of, uh, God, please don't let me go astray from you. Let me continue to trust in you and to follow you. It's more internal matters, mental, psychological traps and snares that we deal with. But in any event, there is no Christian that is going to go through this world without tears, without some measure of misery and sorrow and disappointment and even tragedy will strike. How can a God who in so many ways tells us he loves us everlastingly, completely, exhaustively, allow and permit, not just allow or permit, he ordains this. He leads his people, says the book of Exodus, into the wilderness. Lord, why are you taking us into the wilderness? He bids, uh, the Lord Jesus bids Peter, walk out on the waves. Don't stay there safely in the boat. He calls us to these things. He plans these things. We are treated with such hardships and threats and pains under God's leadership. So I... I originally thought about doing a message on the endangered pilgrim and just focus upon this side of it. But then I bagged it. And you have instead a happier message today, which is the triumphant pilgrim. And as we have seen, the sevenfold anchors of God, and we know it were a well-spent journey, though seven deaths lay between, we're going to look today at how we are to view ourselves in our trials in our losses and crosses, in our disappointments. Although God does not have in store for most of us martyrdom or the sword or the flame, it should be of great comfort to us that were we to face that, we trust that God would carry us through. You have the same faith in you that was in the faith of those who faced lions. And that should strengthen you. This is a message that should make you put your shoulders back. And stand tall because of the grace of God in your life. This is the victory, says says the Bible, even your faith. So I want to spend the rest of our brief time here and remind you of the triumphs of faith over such treatment in this life. The Lord has put you into the school of hard knocks for a reason. To disciple you, to discipline you, and ultimately to develop you, to mold you for his glory and for your good. So five triumphs then to consider here and that that you believe a Christian pilgrim are triumphant, though ill-treated. The first one I want us to consider is that whatever evil that we have in and from this world is far below what we deserve. You get that, right? Because most people don't. We understand that as sinners who deserve the wrath and curse of God, We are miles ahead of others who think that I'm okay, you're okay, everything's fine. And so they're the ones who are always scratching their heads and going, why why is it that bad things happen to good people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Now, on a civil level, we can say, you know, there's people that did not do a certain crime, and they're found guilty of it, and they serve a sentence for it. That is evil being given to somebody who was not doing evil. But in the deeper sense of this term, there is none who does good. 
We who believe Romans chapter 3 have read that there. Not even a single one is good. So this idea of why does bad, bad things happen to good people has to be taken into account with the, the judgment of God there. This turns the question then on its head as it should. It's not why is there so much bad in this world, but why is there any good to a fallen planet like ours? That certainly was Satan's intention when he got Adam and Eve to sin. He thought that they would fall in all of their posterity with them in the same way that those who followed him from heaven would have the same treatment. And it could have gone that way if God had so designed it. But no. When that word deserve, I don't deserve this, or what do I deserve, is found on our lips, we should be immediately putting our mouths down into the dust where the serpent's mouth is who led us into this mess in the first place. What we deserve is God's wrath and separation from him to be placed in outer darkness and the punishments that come justly from his hand. Have you not thought to yourself, I think about this every once in a while, the fact that I am not in hell right now, as I deserve, is all of grace, all of the mercy of God. There's common with, with uh, withholding, uh, restraining grace in this life, but those of us who are children of God have a grace that will hold us through eternity, you see. Anything short of hell is a mercy to sinful angels and sinful people. And to see this then, to know this, and to own this day by day, that I'm a sinner, I don't deserve anything from God but his wrath, that is a triumph. That puts things in perspective. Pilgrims know what God owes them in a way of just deserts. Man, I can't say deserts without thinking of, never mind. And what suffering or losses endured, whatever you have in this life, by a way of hardship, falls very far short of what your sins deserve. You have never had a sin in your life fully judged. None of us have. In fact, there's no place in this world that we can go and say, God fully judged all sin, with one exception, and that's at the cross. Go to the, go to, go to the flood, go to the, the destruction of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, go to the, the, the plagues that were poured out upon, upon Egypt, even go to the awful plagues that we find in the last book just filled with all this destruction uh, before the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus. That's not the full wrath either. It's in the world to come, but we see sin fully judged. His loving kindness is still over all of his works in this fallen world. And that helps the pilgrim to understand um, your condition. That's the first thing. Secondly, right next to this, all of the pilgrim's sufferings have been transformed in their nature. Whatever hardship, cross, trial, difficulty that you have, these have been changed because of your relationship to Christ and under a heavenly Father. They are no longer um, the, the mild, partial penalties which foreshadow hell's full wrath that is to come. For the sinner who's on his way to perdition, on his way to full reprobation, 
All the judgments that they experience in this life are a foretaste of the bad things to come. That's a preaching point for the church. That's a a message from Scripture. Flee the wrath to come because you're already getting a little snootful of it here in this life. But for the Christian, that has changed. Your punishments, your trials, your difficulties in this life are not penal in character. They are rather the fatherly chastenings of a loving hand now. The next chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, brings this out. It says as much, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. So understand that there is no longer in God's mind, in his attitude, this penal element of a righteous judge, but rather the loving purpose of a holy, righteous, heavenly father. First, he is molding you for your good by these things, ultimately to bring you closer and more like unto him. When you are going through a hard time and facing some kind of a chastening, what's your first response? Now, Hebrews agrees with you. It ain't pleasant. No scourging, no chastening in the, in the present time seems pleasant. It doesn't. But if there's a purpose in it, that helps anchor you and helps you to stand through such difficulties. They're ultimately meant to draw you closer to him, to the Lord, and to make you more like him. And then secondly, it itself is a mark of sonship. Boy, the Bible is quite clear. If you don't have these persecutions, these hardships in your life, this mistreatment that comes from the world, are you really walking as a child of God? It's a proof of God's love. Jesus reminds his hearers, I don't know if you've caught this, this, uh, this verse, I'm sure you have, where uh, how good God is to us. When he's in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? When your sons, your daughters, they come to you and say, mom, I, I want something to eat. Or dad, can I, can I, have, a, can I have a snack? You don't go out to the garage and find a reptile and bring it back and say, try this on for size. And he goes on and says, now, if you, and very interesting, you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more this great and good, glorious God gives to those who ask him. Jesus is speaking about prayer in this, in this setting, that he gives good gifts to his children when they ask him. Now, my pastor in seminary made this awesome observation once. He asked this question, when is a stone a loaf of bread? And when is a snake a fish, a fish to eat? He referred to the fact that God is able to make all things work together for your good and out of love to you and shows himself your better portion when he takes away these beloved idols in your life or when he gives you a disease or a taste of destitution. That's when he transforms these qualities in our lives and causes us to be humble and to cry out to him. I've used this statement from Rutherford probably too much, but I'm going to use it again. He says, when the Lord puts me into his basement, into his cellar, I look for the best wine. Usually, when we're put into the cellar, we just whine. But he looks for the best wine. Look for God's purpose in these trials that come your way. These don't happen to you willy-nilly. 
You are the apple of God's eye, and everything that takes place in your life is under his care and love for you. Why is the Lord doing this in your life? And bring that back to how good your God is to you. So our sufferings are never penal, but rather blessings to drive us into the better portion, which is God himself. We sing these lines, Be still, my soul, when dearest friends depart, and all is darkened in the veil of tears. Then you will better know his love, his heart, who comes to soothe your sorrows and your fears. Be still, my soul, your Jesus can repay from his own fullness all he takes away. You sing that. Do you believe that? You are triumphant in your Lord's treatment of you for good. Then number three, God gives you counter grace and mercies, counter riches and wealth to what he takes away in suffering and disappointment. Our God has his own federal reserve that is actually backed by true gold from which he pays you for the Bitcoin of your losses. How do you like that? These include especially the richer enjoyment of what you have in this life. You enjoy life differently than those who don't know the Lord. There's a difference between those two things. Huge difference. The book of Proverbs brings this out over and over again. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fattened ox served with hatred. Better is a dry morsel and quietness with it than a house full of feasting with strife. Now I know you're, this is a bad weekend to teach on the fattened ox and full of feasting because most of us, I hope, this last weekend enjoyed both. We enjoyed the fatted oxen and we enjoyed good fellowship. But you see the contrast between those two things. You would be happier without the strife, without the um, hatred, without the divisions, with less food, less provision. Twice the book of Proverbs says it's better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Repeats it because it's true. And then likewise, Psalm 84, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. It's this that seems to be behind what Jesus told Peter when Peter begins to realize that following Jesus, following the king, the kingdom is not about power and being like a new Roman Empire rising up. Peter begins to say to Jesus, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, it comes with a cost, and in the age to come, eternal life. So Jesus is saying here that your enjoyment of whatever it is you have is so much greater than the possessions themselves. To be able to live to the glory of God, to be able to meet approximately what you were made for, to glorify the Lord, 
to enjoy this covenant life is no mean thing. We need to count that as a rich blessing. Nothing in this world can be compared. Nothing in this world can be made up to to match that. What good is it, asked Jesus, if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul and the possession of your God? In this, you presently triumph. Your joys are the joys of the redeemed. And then number four, in your mistreatments, your sufferings, your losses, your crosses, do you not identify through that with a suffering Savior? What kind of a Savior do you love and worship and follow if not the one who comes with a cross? Your Jesus came into this world to take a cross to himself. And when he said, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross too. We don't know a Jesus without a cross. We don't know a Jesus who did not suffer. In fact, this is part of the mystery that the world just cannot get. Uh, they say this is, this is a huge problem. Why are you going to follow? So, I mean, to, to have the cross, to us, we hardly even think of the cross as being such an awful, horrible way of torture. I mean, we, we make jewelry out of it and wear it around our necks. You wouldn't do that in the first century. The cross was the, the image of, of you're a horrible criminal. You are, it's almost like they were hanging you between heaven and earth, unworthy of either. Get you out of here, you see. But there are many such things. They look at that and go, I'm not going to follow that loser religion. And remember in the early, uh, early church, there was a painting that was made. Uh, somebody was mocking a Christian by the name of uh, Alexamenos. And he's standing there, and here's a cross. And on the cross is a man with a donkey's head on it. And that's how the world looks at the cross. This is a loser's religion. Why would you follow somebody with a cross like that? But two things come from this. The person suffering then, there, was no mere man, definitely not a donkey. It was God's son, glorious in himself. God made flesh, as was prophesied in the Old Testament. And second, after his sufferings and his cross come what? Great glory. It's not just suffering for suffering's sake. There's a reason and a purpose to it. There's a mystery involved. We freely admit as Christians, and we ourselves are our mysteries. Thomas Boston, in his treatment on how we are to live in this world, talks about the Christian as a man on earth, but his head is in heaven. And yet they're truly united. We are crucified, but living by the love of Christ in us. We labor, but it's not we who labor but uh, mighty through the grace that is within us. We are men and women of two principles. We have a will and not a will to one and the same thing. We sin, and yet it's not we who sin. We have many spots and stains, and yet we are righteous and pure by grace. We are lacking many things, but we are perfectly complete. This is the heart of faith. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. It matters not what you have or don't have if you don't have him. And that's at the center of all God's perfect care and providence to each and all of his people. Though the waters of the world are frigid and so unpleasant, they stink. The riverbed beneath at which your feet have been planted are firm 
with overwhelming comfort because you stand upon the Lord Jesus. In this you triumph as a pilgrim, and therefore you take up your cross and follow him. And then fifth and last, how can we possibly compare the burdens and the evils of this place with the future inheritance which is ours already in Christ Jesus? This is the main thing that Paul loves to bring out. In the best chapter of the Bible, Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not even worthy. Don't even go there is probably a colloquialism to carry across the sense of it. There is no comparison. Take all the evils of this life, all of their consideration, pile them up into the mountain of darkness that we are prone to make them. Now set next to them the true mountain of the world that is to come. They, the things here of this earth are not mountains. They're not even hills. They're smaller than that. They're not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in you. Two things then diminish them for the triumphant pilgrim. Number one, they are small, as we just saw, in contrast to what we deserve. Though they should be mountains bringing down fire upon us because of our sins, but they're not. And secondly, they are short. They are brief. They're like a puff of smoke. Your time here is spoken of as a day, as an hour. It is a breath. How long does it take you to to have a breath? Not long. How perfectly, fully, and finally will be the rescue of that world that is to come. It's going to be glorious. You'll be perfectly, fully, and unchangeably removed from all of the evils and hardships of this present difficult age. We won't hardly know what to do when we get there. I believe that. We will be in such awe for like the first thousand years. We won't even know what to say. We won't know how to feel. And yet also I think that God provides that for us so that we do fit in. That's part of the blessing of going to glory. So, as again the same hymn writer says, Be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord, when disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. And what is more, it's not only that we are safe. These are not going to be the the last chapter. These disappointments, trials, hardships, sufferings, These don't define us. We define them. And they're short, as we just said. But not only are we going to be safely removed from them, all such deprivation and evil taken away, the Bible even says that our pains and our losses will themselves be compensated beyond our wildest dreams. At the end of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul encourages you. Therefore, we don't lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction, there it is, it's not 
big is producing for us, there's the compensation, an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You triumph as a pilgrim by faith, as those here in Hebrews 11, and that faith engenders hope. So much better to be looking to what is true and substantial, though at a distance and still yours, than to what is immediate but fleeting and certainly unsatisfying. So there's the contrast. There's how we are to understand why pilgrims are so treated as aliens, mistreated as enemies and and foreigners and so forth. But we have come to embrace that it's Jesus truly who satisfies. Jesus is our all in all. So again, be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, your best, your heavenly friend, through thorny ways, leads to a joyful end. Your best days are ahead. And your best days are going well now. Jesus is on his throne. All is well. Let's thank him. Father, we're grateful for the call to be pilgrims. Thank you for the anchors that you give to us in yourself. And thank you, Lord, for training us and teaching us how to understand the ups and downs of life. We know, Lord, that we are recipients every day of a great bounty from your hand. We don't face what these in Hebrews chapter 11 had to face. We have a, a smaller cup of it. But help us, Lord, to do just as well, if not better, for having less difficulties and trials in this affluent um, nation of ours, this affluent culture. Help us, Lord, to beware that the world eclipse our souls and you, that it becomes an idol to us. And so, Lord, help us to manage our lives always under Christ, to put all things beneath his feet, and to live accordingly. Help us to be reminded well of who we are, our identity in Jesus, that we are soldiers and farmers, but we are pilgrims, and we are on our way home. And so, Lord, lift up our hearts heavenward today and all throughout this week, whatever may come. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.